Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, even with hearts burdened by grief or by anxiety over a diagnosis or war, we need even more to hear the ministry of your word, to receive its healing, and by it to be made whole. Could something of that happen in the reading of Scripture today, in the proclamation of sermon? We pray that it be so. Amen. Last Sunday, we had our first officer training session. We began this session with newly elected elders sharing their faith journeys, how they came to faith, and why they accepted the call to serve at the church in this way. Two of them said that being asked to serve as an elder was one of the greatest honors of their life. I agree with them. I mean, I feel that way. I'm honored to serve this church as a teaching elder, which is what ministers of word and sacrament are called these days. And it got me to thinking, why? Why is this congregation worth serving as an elder? And with this being the Sunday before Commitment Sunday, why is this congregation worth supporting? I could provide a lot of reasons. So can the Second Alive videos, the wonderful videos, a few of which you'll see later. But listing a bunch of reasons may not be the best use of a sermon's time. So let's listen to a passage, and let's listen for what I think is a fundamental reason why a healthy congregation, why this congregation is worthy of support. You'll need to listen carefully because the answer may not be obvious at first. So give a listen. And listen for the word of God. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of the Lord. I bet not many of you have heard this passage used for a stewardship sermon. Maybe a sermon on worship, or more likely, you've heard the last line paraphrased as a call to worship. 
The prelude ends and the liturgist rises to say something like, we are gathered together in the house of God. We do so with confidence because we come into God's presence remembering the words of Jesus when he said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am with you. I don't think Jesus minds our using what he says to call folks into worship, even though he is not talking about worship when he says it. You heard the passage when I read it. You heard what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about how to move forward when someone has been wronged. Peter heard what Jesus was talking about. If I had kept reading past the passage, I would have read his follow-up questions, the questions that Elizabeth dealt with in a sermon a few Sundays ago. How many times do we have to do this? Seven times? Seven times 70? No, Jesus isn't talking about worship when he talks about two or more gathering in his name. He is talking about working things out when one person has wronged another. Go to the person. That doesn't work. Enlist mediators or witnesses. Take a formal route if you have to. If that doesn't work, maybe take a break. It's hard, but it's necessary. He is talking about our doing among ourselves what he does for us, healing the wounds of wrongs, doing the often hard but essential work of addressing the fissures in life that come of our sin or simply come of our being human. He is talking about reconciliation. That's what his teachings are about. Start reading his parables and you'll see what I mean. When he tells of a man attacked and left to die on the side of the road, he says, look at who stops and helps him, and look who doesn't. When he tells of the ungrateful servant, he says, consider how the servant doesn't forgive someone, doesn't excuse the debt of someone who owes him a few dollars right after he had been forgiven of millions. What does that mean? When he tells of a guy who turns his back on his brother, when the brother comes home and the father who runs to welcome him, what is he talking about? He's talking about reconciliation. It's what his life and ministry is all about. Consider the arguments that he has with self-righteous people about who is welcome in God's presence and what is the true intent of the law of love. Or think about his upending cultural norms by eating with the publicly shamed and praising the faith of the rejected who demonstrate acts of grace and kindness that the righteous are not demonstrating. Think about his forgiving a paralytic sin before telling him to rise and walk. Reconciliation is what his life and ministry about. It's what his death and resurrection are about, as seen by his asking forgiveness for those who crucified him as he died. And after his being raised, calling together his disciples who abandoned him to tell them that they are loved and that they have a place in his cause to share God's love with all the world. So no, Jesus isn't saying that when two or more are gathered to conduct the business of worship, he'll be in on that meeting or on that call if worship is live-streamed. We trust that this is true. We trust it's true that he's with us in worship because after all, worship is a holy means by which hearts and minds are reconciled to God. And that's why this passage can legitimately be used as a call to worship. But Jesus is saying this. 
anytime people join together for the cause of reconciliation, I'm in. Jesus is being realistic because that's life. Two or more have to gather for life to even happen. Now, whether harm is caused or a way is found to mutual well-being, things have to be worked out because life is about relationships. Our affirmation of faith said that, but you don't have to believe the affirmation of faith. Listen to the psychologists, listen to the sociologists, listen to the students of human being. If we're going to live in ways that build each other up rather than tear each other down, we have no choice but to do one or the other. We have to be about what heals wounds and builds bridges. The advantage of a church, a healthy church anyway, is that it clearly sees it is to be about this work of reconciliation if it is going to be the body of Christ at all. I said healthy church because it is true that not every congregation remembers this. Some congregations fuel division and dysfunction more than they practice empathy and promote shalom, which is a word that means peace, but means so much more than what we mean when we say peace, but that's another sermon. Anyway, though not every congregation is true to its fundamental reason for being, a congregation that takes seriously its call to witness to the gospel of reconciliation is about this essential work. And we need those congregations. It's David Brooks' opinion that we need those kind of congregations in America more than ever. Brooks has been doing research for a new book that addresses two questions. Why are Americans more sad these days? And the second question is, why are Americans meaner these days? He talked about his research in an interview with Sean Ealing, excerpts of which are contained in an article sent to me. Brooks quotes statistics that suggest that these two trends are connected. Among the trends of sadness, he quotes, are the rising rates of substance abuse and suicide, the growing number of those who say that they do not have close friends, and the rising number of those who have persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. And among the trends of meanness, he quotes, are the rise in murder rates the last few years when it had been falling for years, the decline in charitable giving. Two decades ago, 70% of Americans gave to charity. Today, 50%. And the toxic rise in hateful speech in public places. Brooks sees the sadness and the meanness connecting. Hostility causes some to distrust relationship, which drives them into loneliness that can only be cured by relationships. Brooks goes on to mourn the loss of those communities that, in his words, constrain our natural selfishness. Over the last couple of generations, we've been losing communities that hold the medal by teaching the moral skills of selflessness and empathy, how to listen and how to find common ground, and which promote the value of achieving the greater good even when it's not the perfect good. And with the loss of these communities, he sees the world getting meaner. 
Some have left some communities, including churches, because they have had toxic experiences. They escape their toxicness by retreating into these siloed communities, which then, where everybody thinks alike and everyone is alike, which then demonize other communities, which then leads to the toxicity. But he says to uh, run away from communities so as to escape its unhealth is like refusing to eat because you get food poisoning. Eating isn't the problem. Poisoning is. Communities can be the problem, but they're also the only means by which healing and health can come. Whether they build empathy and understanding, or whether they build common ground where we can meet, or whether they're unhealthy, there is no alternative but to be involved in community. We need less toxic communities, and we need more reconciling ones. Now, if Second Presbyterian Church is the kind of healthy community that is needed in this world, as I believe it is, then that, for me, is the fundamental reason it is worth serving as an elder and supporting as a member. And just so we don't think about this hypothetically, allow me to offer some real-world examples of why I find it an honor to serve this congregation and why Millie and I consider our giving to Second Presbyterian Church to be the most joyful giving that we do. Here's just a snapshot of the reconciling work of this congregation beyond these walls. It's in our congregation's identity statement that we do not affiliate with special interest organizations and we don't spend a lot of energy passing position papers about issues. That is not to say that we don't study these things. We do. We have to study them. If we're going to take seriously Christ's call to be a community of reconciliation, we have to look at the wounds of the world caused by things such as exploitation, racism, and poverty, and tribalism, and neglect, and abuse. But we give our energy to find enough common ground and consensus to do reconciling work, even while we still struggle to figure things out. And so... Homelessness is an issue. We study it. And as we study it, and as we talk about it, and even as we disagree about it and debate it, we give money and hours to build habitat houses and to host families who are struggling to stay off the streets. Certain neighborhoods are in distress, and there are social and racial undertones as to how this evolved. But as we study that and as we debate it and as we think about how this happened, we still throw strong support behind the PCC and Ram House and programs at at-risk schools and other efforts to bring neighborhoods up. Affordable health care is a problem. We could debate forever on why that is and how to fix it politically. And at the end, everyone would be right about something and they would be wrong about something, oftentimes even as nothing is done. But while we study and discuss, we as a church send medical mission teams overseas and support the Bradley Free Clinic and Horizon Health here at home. You know, so much healing work that happens in our community would not be happening without Second Presbyterian Church and other communities that refuse to remain isolated from problems, but rather engage them. 
That's true in many ways, but it's also a financial fact. Here's a snapshot of the reconciling work of this congregation within these walls. We worship, we study. In worship, we raise up the vision of God's realm where justice is defined by mercy, and in the end, all will be made whole. And in our studies, we teach the moral tradition so we can learn to be kind and not mean, loving and not hateful. That sounds almost childish. It sounds like something we might say in a children's sermon, but it could not be more important and profound. The reason we study is so we can learn to be more kind and not hateful. We overcome in our life and witness the isolation and loneliness Brooks talked about. We overcome it through the fellowship of our church community, the care of the hurting, the visitation of those who are confined in their homes. Here's a snapshot of the reconciling work of this congregation within hearts and minds. In worship, we hear truths that are not said in other places, but they are the most profound and important truths of our lives. We hear the truth that we are all children of God and saved by grace. These are reconciling truths because they speak to the deepest loneliness that we can know, and that is the loneliness of, of believing that we are condemned by our wrongs and abandoned at death. And grounded in God's love, grounded in that truth, we gain strength within ourselves so that we can be more healers rather than the harmed, more the gracious than the mean, more the reconcilers than the dividers. When we engage in the relationships out in the world where sometimes too many strings are attached and demands are taken aside. But we can rise above it because our identity and our strength comes from being grounded in knowing that we are loved by God and we are saved by grace. And we hear these truths, we pray about them, and then we discover that the reconciling work that we can do in this world is because of the reconciling work that Jesus does within us. I'm not saying this congregation is perfect. Perfection is not in the cards. I am saying that this is a congregation that strives to be an imperfect, broken body of Christ in the world. And for me, that is the fundamental reason why it's such a privilege to lead and support this church. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.